Well, good morning, church family, and uh, an extended good morning to our entire Facebook family as well. You know, it's been our plan for some time to um, have a live stream service and feed that we were able that we would be able to put on Facebook. Um, however, we weren't expecting or preparing for that to be under these circumstances. We kind of hoped that it would be under better and brighter and different circumstances when we did get that live stream going, but we're going to do the best that we can with what we have. Um, I'm so thankful for all of you that will be watching or that may watch in the future after the live stream is finished. Thank you. We know that there's been a lot of talk in the media about the coronavirus and the COVID-19 and all of that, and whether you're scared of the virus itself whether you're scared of the panic or whether you're just curious and concerned as to what the government might do, one thing that we can be certain of, and it's been posted by pastors and Christians and ministers all over the internet, is that God isn't scared. God isn't concerned. God wasn't taken by surprise with this. We were surprised, but God wasn't. We may be concerned and panic-stricken and running to and fro buying up Germex and toilet paper and what have you, but God is still calm, cool, and collected, and He still sits upon the throne. He knew that this was going to happen long before it ever came. He knew how people were going to react long before their reactions ever became a reality. He knew, and He still knows. So you can either view this as God was surprised or you can view this as God is sovereign. And we, as Christians, choose to believe that God is sovereign in all of this and that he's going to use this crisis as a catalyst to turn people back to the Creator. And that's what I'm believing. And that's what I ask you to join in and believe with me, that God is going to turn this crisis into a catalyst or into a launching which turns people back to the Creator, which is God. And so that's going to be our prayer. And I'd ask before we begin the message and before we get into all of the Word of God, I'd just ask that you would join me in a short prayer. So if you would, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for the opportunity, God. For the opportunity, while we may not be able to meet physically, we can still meet together online. And while this may not be ideal because we can't have the fellowship that we would normally enjoy, it's still better than what a lot of people are doing or what a lot of people are forced to do. Many churches are closed and have the doors shut and they don't have the option of an online service. So Lord, we want to thank you that while our technology may not be the best and it may not match the technology and the ability of other churches, we still have some ability to put our message online and meet together in an online format. So thank you, God. And Lord, I also want to thank you that while the rest of the world may be panicked by the COVID-19 concern and crisis, we know that whatever this turns out to be, whether good or bad, that you are going to use it for your glory. And that we as Christians know that the worst thing that can happen in this life is death. And we laugh at that because if the worst thing that can happen is this life is in this life is death, we have joy knowing that we have a better life awaiting us. Lord, I pray and my heart goes out to those that do not know you and do not have a relationship with you because they're facing this global pandemic and this COVID-19 crisis without the comfort and consolation of an afterlife, without knowledge of knowing that when they shed this mortal coil, 
as Shakespeare put it, that they don't have an eternity of joy awaiting them, but they have an eternity of hell. And so, Lord, while we may not be concerned or scared because you have not given us a spirit of fear, we are very somber concerning this because we know that the fact is, is that people will die. And some of those people that die will die without knowing you as their Lord and Savior. And that's a very sobering fact. So, Lord, let us use this crisis. Let us use this global event to evangelize in the best means and ways that we know how. And Lord, we pray that you would be with us. And I ask that you bless this message, Lord, because I know that while this is your word and I've done my part in studying it, Lord, I can't possibly preach this with any effectiveness without the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So I would just ask, Lord, that you would anoint me and that you would anoint and take this word and carry it to the hearts of everyone that hears it so that it might produce a change in them. In Jesus' name, amen. So, <laughs> today is a day of many firsts. For example, um, this is the first time in my entire life that I'm aware of that I've experienced a global pandemic. Um, this is the first time, and still within the first year, that Faith and I are pastors. So we are experiencing our first pandemic and our first pastorate within the first year. Um, this is our first time live streaming, and while I am never nervous... Um, let me rephrase that. While I am never fearful of preaching to a congregation or an audience, regardless of the size, preaching to no congregation and only to a little camera is terrifying to me. So if I act nervous or if I seem nervous, I apologize. This is my first time live streaming a message. And it never fails. I can preach great to a congregation, but I get in front of a camera and it's just me and I'm uh, uh, uh. So please bear with me and offer me the same grace that you would ask me to offer you in a situation like that. This is also the first time that I'm using this pulpit. So it's beautiful. I hope that you enjoy it. I actually like the smaller pulpit rather than our large bulky one. But enough of that. We are in the middle of a series um, called Encounter with Jesus. And last week, we read from John 5, and we preached a message, and we discussed, uh, see all of your Facebook reactions, thank you for the love. We discussed the woman at the well, and how she had nothing going for her. Every possible limitation was on her. Not only was she a woman in a very patriarchal society, not only... Was she a woman, but she was also a Samaritan, and the Jews and the Samaritans didn't have that going for them. That relationship was hostile at best. Not only was she a woman and a Samaritan, but she was also a woman that was in sin and had been in sin throughout the majority of her life. Not only all of that, but she had skewed views of what worship was. And yet, in all of those things, we still see that her encounter with Jesus was not focused on what she didn't have going for her. Her encounter with Jesus was focused on what she could have going for her. For example, Jesus never beats her up for her marriage. He mentions it, and she comes to the conclusion, oh, you're a prophet. Well, even in all of that, all he does is offer her a well of living water. He offers her the opportunity to embrace him as the Savior, as the Messiah. And then her testimony ends up leading that whole city and town to come to him. And they say, 
because it says because of the woman's testimony, many in that town were believed on him. And then it goes on to say, now we believe not because of your testimony, but because we met him. And so we often look at ourselves and say, we don't have anything going for us. We're not the best speaker. We're not the smartest and the brightest. We don't know the word of God like so-and-so or like so-and-so. But the truth of the matter is, is that all we need is Jesus. So when you're looking at this whole COVID-19 crisis and you're like, I want to evangelize to my family and friends that are terrified by this virus, but I just don't know the word well enough, or I just don't know how to do that in an effective manner. Just know that all you need is Jesus and the Spirit of God, and He will remind you of those things that you may not even be aware of that you know, because Jesus is all that you need. Now, am I saying that we shouldn't do our due diligence in studying and preparing and making ourselves the best possible vessel? No, of course we need to do those things. What I am saying is that we cannot, by the woman's example in the text that we read in John chapter 5, is that we cannot disqualify ourselves for what we may or may not have going for us according to the natural. Now, normally I would say amen and everybody would say amen, but I can't do that because it's a online only audience. So if you want to say amen, give me a thumbs up or a smiling reaction and we'll just pretend that that's um, the Facebook amen. Um, today we're going to kind of move, not leave that because we're still in the Encountering Jesus series, but we're going to move into Mark. Mark chapter 10 verse 17 is what we're going to be focusing on and we're going to see another individual, this time an individual that has everything going for them. And we're going to see what their encounter with Jesus produces. So I'll give you a minute just to turn there. And while you're turning there, I want to show you something. Um, I made these handouts and I would have them in service and they would be out there on the entryway um, table and you would be able to pick these up. But since we're not here physically, you might be able to go to the website online and print this out. It's under the resources page. It's simply an Encountering Ser Christ series handout and it has all of the options or rather I say several things, questions that you are asked about the sermon so that you have a better way to cohesively take notes. Because sometimes I know that when we're taking notes in a, according to a sermon that our thoughts may get scattered all over the place. This is just simply providing a streamline so that you can take notes and then find an easy and applicable way to put those notes into practice. Again, you don't have to do that. I'm not saying that I'm going to take them up and grade you on them. This isn't school. I'm just offering that as an additional resource. So Mark chapter 10, verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure, treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I'm getting tongue-tied. I apologize. Verse 17. Let's kind of unpack this a little bit. And we're going to progress through this kind of slowly. He ran up to Jesus and knelt down before him and asked him, Good teacher. Stop. 
good teacher. So that's establishing what he thought of Jesus. And if you skip down to the next verse, Jesus says, why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? There's no one good except God the Father. Now Jesus, and I've heard many, many different people preach on this and many different interpretations of this. Jesus does not all of a sudden say, hey, I'm not good. That never comes out of his mouth, but a lot of people read that into the text and they try to preach around this as this is some great stumbling block to Christianity. Like, wait a second, isn't Jesus perfect? Isn't he good? Of course he is. But look at what Jesus is actually saying in the question. He says, the young man says, good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's no one good except God. So what Jesus is doing is he's throwing up this stark contrast. If you're going to call me good, you have to call me God. And see, Jesus isn't saying, I'm not good. Jesus is, in fact, saying, I am God. That's what Jesus is saying is, I am God. If you esteem me as good, you have to esteem me as God. I'll say that again. Jesus is either good, and if he's good, he has to be God, or he's a lunatic, a madman, a crazy person. There is no in-between. Jesus is either good, and if he's good, then he's God, or he's a liar, a heretic, a blasphemer, a lunatic, and a madman. There's no in-between. There's no middle ground. So if you say that Jesus is good, you must say that he's God. You've all heard it. We've all heard it a thousand times that people will say, well, I believe that Jesus existed, but I just believe that he was a prophet or that he was a good teacher. And that's exactly the problem that's raised here in Scripture is a young man says, good teacher. And Jesus is like, wait a second, you can't say that about me unless you're willing to go the extra step and say that I'm God. You cannot say I am a good teacher unless you say that I am God teaching. Does that make sense? Again, just habit. Can't see you guys in your reaction. But that's what I'm trying, what I'm trying to convey is if you esteem Jesus as good, as a good teacher, you must esteem him as God teaching. You cannot esteem him as good and not also esteem him as God. Because if he is good, he must be God. If he is not God, then he cannot be good. And therefore, he is a liar, a heretic, or an insane individual. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This is a problem that we face in Christianity over and over and over again. Paul addresses it this way. He says, now that you've been saved by grace, are you now perfected by the law? We constantly face this in Christianity where people will say that they're saved. They'll say that I believe in Jesus. And now they look to, well, what must I do to maintain my salvation? Or what must I do so that Jesus will accept me and find me worthy of salvation? And the answer is completely nothing. And this young man comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do? Not what will you do for me, Jesus, but what must I do to be saved? And so Jesus, just answering his response, says, you know the commandments. And he starts to name off a few of the Ten Commandments. And the young man is instantly excited by this because, like, well, I've kept all these for my youth up. The truth of the matter is, is he hadn't seen the heart behind the law and that he hadn't kept those because he may have honored his father and mother with his actions or with his words. But in his heart and in his mind, he probably dishonored them on numerous occasions. He may have never lusted or coveted after a woman, but in his heart and in his mind, he probably did on numerous occasions. So he thought that because his physical body and actions upheld the law or kept the law, that he was good. 
But Jesus, I love this next part. Jesus looking at him, loved him. And so often we in trying to earn our salvation and trying to press forward and press on and press inward and trying to come back to this works-based mentality where I can't keep doing that. I got to put that down. I can't keep falling. I can't keep sinning. I can't keep doing this. And all of those things are true in aspects of sanctification. But we do those things from a fear of losing our salvation. Or we do those in kind of this almost conjunction mindset like Jesus did a lot, but now he expects me to do the rest. Like Jesus may have saved me, but now I have to repay that salvation. Now I have to complete that work. That's why Paul made that statement we mentioned a moment ago. Having been saved by grace, are you now perfected by the law? Or are you now matured by the law? See, we think that Jesus starts it and then we, through our works and our good deeds and our actions, complete it or finish it out. And that's simply not true. Jesus starts it finishes it, and establishes it for all of eternity. Jesus is the complete package. So when Jesus looks at him, he loves him. And out of his love, he sets the hard truth forth. See, a lot of us in our, you know, you-do-you-boo society and our don't judge me society and our look out for your own society, you know, I'll do me, you do you society. We think that love is just being kind. And while that's an aspect of love, Proverbs says that open rebuke is better than secret love. Meaning that to openly rebuke and correct someone when they're in error is better than to just let them be in error and secretly love them. So Jesus sees this and sees this man's error that he thinks that he has completed the law. He thinks that he has fulfilled the law. He thinks that his actions are enough. And so he's excited. He's like, good teacher, I have done this from my youth up. I have never transgressed your law. And Jesus says, you lack one thing, one thing. And I've heard a lot of people preach this, that the thing that he lacks is that he's rich and that he needs to sell all of his possessions. And they may preach from this, a poverty gospel that if you're rich, you can't get into heaven. That's not the message here. If you're rich, it may be more difficult to get into heaven because your possessions may end up possessing you. But that is not the message here. The message here and the primary focus here is that the one thing that he lacks is Jesus himself. Let me say that again. The one thing that he lacks is Jesus himself. The young man has the money. He has the commandments. He has the outward show of righteousness. He was a rich young ruler. So he had the servants. He had the stuff. He had everything going for him in this life. And he thought that he was good. But Jesus says, out of everything that you have going for you, there's one thing that you don't have. There's one thing that you lack. Let's see how Jesus words it. He says, go sell all that you have and give to the poor. Go and sell everything and give to the poor. 
you've known what it is to have everything going for you. Now let's empty the cup and have nothing going for you except the one thing. And I think that there's a stark contrast being portrayed here. And last week when we looked at John 5, we looked at the woman that had nothing going for her, but she found Jesus. And so even though she had nothing going for her in finding Jesus, she in fact had everything going for her. And then we see this young man who has everything going for him naturally, but he doesn't have Jesus. So in fact, he has nothing going for him. And the contrast here is you can have everything, but if you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. Or you can have nothing, but if you have Jesus, you have everything. That song that we listen to so often, I have Jesus and that's all that I need. Or another song, you can have this whole world, just give me Jesus. You know, sometimes I think that we tell more lies when we sing than we do any other time in our life. When we sing, we say these scriptural truths that should be true applicably in our life, but we don't keep them. For example, we say you can have this whole world, just give me Jesus. Do we really mean that? We can have, you can have everything else. You can have my money, my house, my car, my job. I mean, the COVID-19 is putting a scare on everybody, so it's really testing what do you actually need because people are fighting in stores over toilet paper. And Germex, or people are buying it in bulk and then reselling it for a profit, buying baby formula up so that mothers can't get it for their children and they're quadrupling the price for a profit. But we say, you can have this whole world, just give me Jesus. In a situation like this, that truth is really tested. Do you, you really believe that Jesus is all that you need when everything that you naturally need is taken away from you? Are you going to cry out to God and say, God, I have I don't have what I need. I, I don't have toilet paper. I don't have Germex. I don't have a face mask. I don't have food. God, I, I don't have what I need. I, I'm not able to go to work. I'm not able to pay my bills. I, I don't have what I need. But last Sunday in church, you sang, Jesus is all that I need. It's interesting how a crisis or a situation like this really puts what we say to the test. In America, we have an odd form of Christianity that's found almost nowhere else in the world. Um, and I can't say that from the perspective of being a worldwide missionary or of being well-traveled. I just say that from the testimony that I hear from people in, all over the world and all these other countries. In America, our Christianity can sometimes be limited to just once or twice a week, if that. And we have little or no interaction with God at any point in between. And in some countries throughout the world, if they find out that you're a Christian, your life is at stake. Your job is at stake. Your family is threatened. Your ability to buy and sell and get food is almost non-existent. 
Is Jesus all that you need? For the woman, she rejoiced in this fact because she already didn't have anything. She's like, I ain't got nothing. And now I see this man, the Messiah, and he is conveying this truth of this well of living water that once it's in me, it will rise up out of me and that I will have a peace that passes understanding, a joy unspeakable and full of glory, a calm in the midst of the storm. I will have this overwhelming, overarching peace that is only found in Jesus. And she runs and is telling everyone because she has all that she needs. Yet you come to this man and he has everything going for him. I mean, perhaps he was Jewish, I don't know, but he was a rich young ruler, so he was wealthy. He had power and influence. He was of the right culture, of the right ethnicity. He had all these things working in his favor. He kept the commandments, so that would imply that he was in fact Jewish, or at least he was a proselyte. He had everything going for him. Yet, Jesus says you lack this one thing, which in fact is the main thing, which is Jesus. And the young man he gets disheartened. I want you to look at something that he said. He said, when Jesus lists out the commandments and he says, teacher, I've kept all of these from my youth. Notice what he said. I have kept all of these from my youth. And this is just a little play on words. And I'm not a Greek scholar, so the Greek may not carry my train of thought. But for our sake, I'm just going to use this little word play here. He says, I have kept all of these from my youth. And the word kept, if it's the same word, kind of means holding, possessing, guarding, keeping. Kept. I've guarded, I've protected, I've, I've held on to all of these from my youth. Kept. Jesus fulfilled. The young man has kept all of the commandments from his youth. Jesus fulfilled all the commandments permanently. Which is better, kept or fulfilled? See, if you've kept them, they're still there. They still reign in power. They still have the influence and the hold on you and on your life. And you're still underneath of them. But you're kept. They're kept. You're keeping them. But if they're fulfilled and Jesus has fulfilled them for all time, then they no longer hold you down as a burden, but you can rejoice in them knowing that they are in fact fulfilled and Jesus Christ's fulfillment of them works as your fulfillment of them because we know that he who knew no sin was made sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He, Christ Jesus, that knew no sin, that never sinned, that even though he was tempted in every point, in every way that we are tempted, he never sinned, he never failed. He never slacked. He never faltered. Not in his actions like the rich young ruler, but even from further than that, not in his motives, not in his mind, not in his heart. He never slipped, never failed, never faltered. And then he went to the cross and the substitutionary sacrifice of atonement. He took his righteousness and he imputed it to our account that he might become our sin. He took our sin, our punishment, our penalty on himself and died, sin was put to death. 
and he gave us his righteousness. I try to bring that up in some small fashion almost every time that I preach. Because to me, that is the greatest truth. If it's not for that, then we're wasting our time. If it's not for the substitution, we're wasting our time. But this young man doesn't want an exchange. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor. Now we could preach that we have to sell everything that we have and we have to have a communal style of government, etc., etc., etc. That's not what this is saying. What this is saying is Jesus sees the young man's hindrance. He sees the barrier in the way and says, if you get rid of that barrier and you come and follow me, that is answering the question you originally asked when you said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The answer is nothing, but I will do it if you only come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. This whole thing really puts it in perspective because we have this idea sometimes that if people will just encounter Christ one time, that it will change their life forever. And I really wanted to preach this message because I wanted to show something. While I'm saying this next bit, if you want to turn over to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2, I really wanted to convey this truth. That encountering Christ can change everything in your life. Absolutely certain. But you can encounter Christ in some small measure of the word encounter. And it changed absolutely nothing. If you don't do it, Knowing who it is that you encounter. Remember the conversation with the woman at the well from John chapter 4? He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is, if you knew, and later on she mentions the Messiah and she comes to that knowledge. And then she has faith, the gift of faith. And she can act on that knowledge and it changes her entire life. I have to say, it doesn't really give an account, at least not a specific account, that we can know for certain exactly what happened to her beyond that point and beyond the revival following. But I have to say that her life was never the same. She couldn't have encountered Christ that way and went back to the th way things always were. Because she became aware of who he was and God opened her eyes and gave her the gift of faith. And because of that, she went away forever changed. The rich young man didn't know who he was talking to. He thought he was talking to a good teacher. He didn't realize he was talking to God that just so happened to be teaching. He didn't want to give up his riches and his possessions, probably wouldn't have wanted to give up his status and his influence, probably wouldn't have wanted to walk away from the Jewish law that he had fulfilled and, or that he had kept so rigidly from his youth up, probably sought comfort and found comfort in all of those things. So he didn't want to give up any of those things to follow Jesus. We'll read Hebrews chapter 4 verse 2. For good news came to us just as to them, 
But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. The good news, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news. The good news, the gospel came to us just as it came to them. But the message that they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. See, we can encounter Christ not knowing who he is and not having our eyes open and not having faith and it changed absolutely nothing. And we'll go on living our life the same way that we've always lived it. Maybe our hearts are a little bit harder. Maybe our actions become a little bit more sinful. Maybe we become a little bit more cynical. See, there's people that walk into a church and they cross their arms and they sit bah humbug style saying, just go ahead, preacher, try to get to me. Go ahead, worship leader, try to influence me. Try to get a tear out of me. Try to get a reaction out of me. And they're going to sit there either with their arms crossed or when they stand up, they're going to stand there with their hands in their pockets and they're not going to sway. They're going to stand like this, looking like the Spirit of God fell on 84 lumber. They're just going to stand there like this, as stiff as a board, as stiff as possible, because they do not want you to think that you have somehow impacted them. And I've seen it in churches my whole life. Maybe a man comes because his wife just keeps begging him and begging him and begging him and he calls it nagging, nagging, nagging. And so finally he just says, okay, I'll go, but if you leave me alone. And the wife is hoping that if he goes and that he, if he just attends, that somehow the preacher or the worship leader or somebody is going to do something that's just going to change his life forever. And that's a possibility. But the truth is, is that the only thing that makes an encounter with Christ life-changing is the Spirit of God opening your eyes, instilling that gift of faith in you. And then you going forth from there, following Jesus. I went into churches my whole life, leading up to the time I actually got saved. I grew up in a church, had a little bit of time away. Then I attended a Baptist church every single week. I mean, you know, to my mother's credit, she was determined that I would go to church. And sometimes I would go to church on Sunday morning, this Baptist church. It was right across the street from where we lived at. And sometimes I would walk over across the street and go to church and I would still be drunk from the night before. Or have a hangover. Or be getting high on my way to church. And I would sit in there. Never moved. You know, we could encourage and gain conversation. You know, we'd get in on some of the conversations, you know. Uh, but it was never really, it never really impacted me. It was almost like you sitting there like, okay, preacher, try to move me. Try to impact me. Try to change me. Try to do something in me. And the truth is that preacher couldn't do that. God had to open my eyes. God had to give the gift of faith. God had to take my heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. God had to do that. You know, we think about even Peter's encounter with Christ when Christ says, who do people say that I am? He says, you know, Jeremiah, Elias, one of the prophets. 
who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're Christ, the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. You're Jesus. You're God. That's who you are. And Jesus' response is very revealing. It says, flesh and blood hadn't revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has shown you this. My Father who is in heaven. God had to do a work in Peter so that Peter could see something that we read and we're like, oh, that's easy to see. But yeah, we do go to church all the time and we completely miss it. What I'm asking, what I'm pleading, and you can't really have a huge available response time because we're online only. And that's one of the, the detriments of not having a physical gathering is I would love to just give the opportunity and say, guys, if you've been in this situation where you know that God is moving on your life and you know that you've already, it's not about salvation. That's not what I'm talking about in this instance, although it is applicable there. If you've already began following Christ and you're coming to this moment, this crisis point, this decision point, and you know that God's asking you to do something, but at this point you're like, God, I don't want to do that because look at what I have. And so what God's asking you to do disheartens you because you're like, look at what I have. I go to church. I attend regular, regularly. I have a good job, a good family. I've got money saved up. Now COVID-19's come out and I've got three months worth of supplies and two years worth of toilet paper. I'm good. I don't want to give up anything. I don't want to give up anything. I don't want to sacrifice anything. The truth is, is I become more and more convinced as I, as time goes on as to whether or not Christianity or those that claim Christianity that are unwilling to sacrifice are actually Christians. I know that that's a difficult pill to swallow. Christianity is a sacrificial Religion, And I know we don't like that word religion because of all the negative connotations and because people all over the world throw religion in there and attach it to anything. I mean, you can say you believe anything you want and call it a religion. Uh, but the truth is, it is a system of belief, so it does fall under that category of religion. But we have to understand that Christianity is a religion of sacrifice. It's all predicated around God's sacrifice first, the greatest sacrifice. But then in that sacrifice, if you want to partake of that sacrifice, if you want to truly be in Christ, then that being in Christ, you will follow him and sacrifice just as he sacrificed. He says that greater love has no man than this, then he'd be willing to lay down his life for a friend. That's the ultimate display of love and Christ is calling us to love. And now with the COVID-19 and the social separation and all of that. Look, I heard read a post about the Span Spanish flu. I think that's what it was called. You have to forgive me if that was incorrect. But a lot of people that died, died of thirst because people were so scared that they were unwilling to take elderly people water in their homes or they were unwilling to act out and show love because they were scared for themselves. Look, in this time of global pandemic, in this time of uncertainty, the one thing that we can't operate under is the spirit of fear. Jesus is saying, go and sell all that you have to the rich young ruler. But to us, I think it's a constant. Are you willing to give up everything, even if that everything includes your very life? And the answer has to be yes. 
How can we claim to follow Jesus if we're not willing to do the same things that he did, if we're not willing to go where he went? I read, Faith read me a testimony of a, an elderly lady outside of Walmart in the midst of all this panic. And the elderly lady had been sitting there in her car for 45 minutes and she was scared to death to go into Walmart. One, because she didn't have the physical ability to do it. And two, because there was just so many people and so many long lines and she had $100 to buy groceries that was supposed to last her for two weeks. And she had been waiting for 45 minutes until finally she asked a young woman. She handed the young woman $100 cash and asked the woman if she would go into Walmart and buy her the groceries that she had on her list. And praise God, the young woman was the one that was posting, and she did, and she faithfully bought the groceries and gave that woman the change and or whatever. That's the example of love that I'm asking you as your pastor. And if you're on joining us Facebook or watching this video later, and I'm not your pastor or just a friend or maybe just a stranger, and you're just seeing the video, I'm asking you, and I'm appealing it to you as a Christian, as a friend, I'm asking you to step out and show the love of God in ways that you never have. Step out and show the love of God in ways that you never have. Because no one makes any sacrifice in this life that's not rewarded in the next. No one does anything that God doesn't see and reward accordingly. For this young man, his encounter with Christ, when he realized that Christianity costs something, his encounter with Christ did not go the way that he wanted and he walked away disheartened and sorrowful because of his possessions and what he might lose. Let's not make that same mistake. Let's look at what we have to gain because Paul said it this way, the exceeding greatness of glory that awaits us is so much better and so much far beyond that it's not even worthy to be compared with this fleeting light afflictions. I know I said that backwards, but that's okay. You get the point, is that these light and momentary afflictions are unworthy to be compared with the exceeding greatness of glory that awaits us. So with that being said, I ask you, show love to those that nobody else will. Don't let fear prevents you from doing the things that God's called you to do. Use wisdom, operate in the best interest of your family be a protector, but don't think that the best interest of you and your family violate the responsibility that you have as a Christian, as a child of God, because we are called to be a light in the midst of darkness. We are called to be different than the world. We're in it, not of it. We're pilgrims. We're only passing through. This lifetime is a small momentary blip on the radar. Our life is a vapor. Our life is compared to grass that's here today and burn up tomorrow. Our life is short and brief. And no matter how much we quarantine ourselves and hole ourselves up and separate ourselves from the rest of the world, we don't know that we have a tomorrow anyway. So don't let the fear of what tomorrow may or may not bring prevent you from being who you are called by God to be today. Let's go forth. Let's encounter Christ and carry with us that encounter just as the woman from the well did so that others may hear 
may see and may believe and they may have an encounter with Christ of their own. Amen. Amen. Father, I just thank you for the opportunity to present your word. God, hopefully I've done that faithfully. Lord, if I've said anything that was in error or wrong or crass that I shouldn't have said, God, I ask for your forgiveness. Lord, but if I've said the truth, even if it's hard, Lord, I ask that people may receive it and that they may walk accordingly. That people may take the truth of the word of God and they may apply it to their lives and that they may move forward in the power and demonstration of the Holy Ghost. I ask that you protect your people, Lord. I ask that you protect your people. And I ask that even as this pandemic surges and as America approaches the peak of this virus, I ask that we would not be overwhelmed by a spirit of fear. But I say it again, as it's been said so many times, that we would operate the spirit of power, love, and a sound mind, knowing that perfect love casts out all fear. Jesus, you are perfect love. So a true relationship with you will cast that fear from us. Let us love one another as you loved us. Let us be demonstrations of the goodness of Christianity in this time of confusion. Let us be witnesses and a light in the midst of darkness. Amen. Well, as we always dismiss our service, I thank you again for everybody that watched and listened and took part in this. Um, for those of you that will watch, watch later, I thank you for watching. Um, and I just want to dismiss it by saying, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may the Lord give you peace. And may it be a peace that passes all understanding. In Jesus' name, amen.